Thanks for joining us on the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. This is Justin Gary. Whether you consider yourself a handyman or not, at some point in your life, you will probably need to put together something step by step, like a piece of furniture you bought at Ikea, or some playset you bought your kid for Christmas, or a model airplane you got as a gift on your last birthday. And most of us will be tempted at least once to try and put something together without using the instructions. We wing it, assembling the item based on the picture on the box, only to find after you're finished the extra bag of screws or some random pieces that you forgot to use. But you figure even though it might be a bit wobbly, as long as it does its job, what's the big deal if not every screw or piece made it out of the box, right? When it comes to a piece of furniture or a Christmas present your kid just unwrapped, not having all the parts in place shouldn't be a life and death situation. But there are other scenarios where even one missing screw could be catastrophic. Let's say you take your car or truck or SUV to the mechanic, and after putting it back together during a repair, a few screws or bolts or parts remain on the workbench or are missing completely. How much can one little screw or piece do, right? In a situation like that, the engineers who designed the vehicle put even the smallest screw or bolt there for a reason. Vehicles today are strategically designed to absorb and transfer the energy from a collision in a specific way to disperse the impact through the entire vehicle. If even just one piece or part or screw or bolt is missing or left on the workbench, this can mess up the entire process of absorbing and transferring energy in a collision leading to more extensive damage, injury, and even death. Each part, no matter how small, has a purpose in the bigger picture, and so it goes in the body of Christ. No part is too small or too insignificant. God, the master engineer, has given us each a believer as a role to play in his kingdom. On the last podcast, we looked at the therefore, as Paul showed us that because of all that Christ has done for us, something that we saw in chapters one through three, that now we are to walk worthy of the new calling, the new vocation we have as Christians. Paul said he beseeches us, he pleads and he begs that we would live a life that is worthy of our new life in Jesus, a life that reflects him, and that we should walk in humility and patience and love with those around us. He also told us that as we each walk in our new calling, there will be a unity, a oneness in the church as the same God and Father is allowed to be in charge of each one of our lives, a God who is above all and through all and in us all. Today, Paul continues talking about how that new life will work out practically and that the God who is in us all now by the Holy Spirit will manifest himself through us for the benefit of others. Each of us having a unique role in building up the kingdom of God, an important, necessary role in the giftings and callings he has blessed us with. And nothing in the end, no screws or bolts or parts should be left on the side in order for all things to work together as they should. We pick up in this episode in Ephesians 2, verse 7. In verse 7, we read, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one of us, no one left out, no matter how great or small or talented or not, everyone who has the new calling of being a Christian has received at least one gift. Notice how Paul emphasizes this in verse 7, grace given 
according to Christ's gift. These are gracious gifts that Christ has chosen to give us as new members of his family. Nothing we earned, nothing we deserved, but simply gifts by grace. It can be horrible when we forget someone on our gift list, can't it? Or to be the one not receiving a gift when everyone else is opening up theirs. But what a great feeling to be on the receiving end of giving a gift, of getting a gift. At my work, the department I work in basically is all females, except for me. And this year, the department decided to do a secret sister gift activity. Each one would get the name of another coworker and throughout the year, secretly give them little gifts to show them that they are appreciated. Now, being the only dude in the apartment, I opted out of being a secret sister. It's just not my thing. Plus, I felt bad for whichever female coworker would get my name. Not as much fun shopping for a guy than another female coworker that could get cute stuff for. So instead of participating, I offered to be the hidden homie. The secret sisters could come to me, the hidden homie, when they had a gift to give, and I would deliver their gifts. That way there would be no suspicions about who had drawn whose name until the big reveal at the end of the school year. And I could be a team player and get involved in some other way. I tell you, being the hidden homie is awesome. Each time I get to deliver a gift, the surprise and excitement these ladies have, so thrilled that something that something was given to them. Someone gave them a gift. I tell you, it doesn't get old as their eyes light up and they try and figure out amongst themselves who picked who. Well, in the kingdom of God, Jesus is our secret sister and our hidden homie, because to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's beautiful to watch the eyes of someone receive the gift in any situation, that realization that someone thought of them or wants to honor them. And how wonderful it is as Christians to discover that God has gifted us with something in his kingdom a gift or a role or a ministry, to watch someone get excited when they realize God has seen them and wants them to be a part of what he is doing. Sort of like being discovered by some talent scout just going about with your daily life. And they walk up to you and say, hey, you, come with me. You're going to be a star. Not that there's any glory in being used by Jesus and not that there's anything worthy in us to receive the gift, but the Lord comes to us and says, hey, you, I've got something for you to do. Because as Paul says, it is grace, it's given, it's a gift. And it's exhilarating to discover that God has appointed some gift or role for you. You are on his gift list. I remember the excitement that ran through Sunday school as a kid when some of us started to be chosen by higher-ups in the church to come sit in adult worship right in the front row and change the transparencies for worship. Now, this was back in the 80s and 90s, when during worship, you had to manually change the clear plastic sheets the song lyrics were printed on, placing them on the overhead projector that shot up the lyrics up on the wall. And someone had to manually place them on the lit up surface and move them up during the course and switch them for each song. Well, how thrilled we were, even as fourth, fifth and sixth graders, when some adult on the worship team asked us if we would do it. I mean, we started showing up to church early and lingering around the front row of the auditorium before service, hoping we might look desperate and available enough that the worship leader might say to us, hey, kid, can you flip these plastic sheets today? It was almost a pick me, pick me situation. And if you were asked, yes, I thought you'd never ask. We were thrilled to be given a ministry, a purpose. We felt so important doing that small little task so that everyone could worship in church that day. To be told, you too have a gift. 
as simple as that gift sounded, it made us feel important. It made us see that we were needed, like we were a part of something. I mean, technically, worship couldn't take place that day if we didn't step up to the plate, right? And we took the opportunity and the gift seriously, I tell you. Now, sometimes we think that maybe some super elite Christians might be given gifts to be used by God, like those who have obtained some level of stature or spiritual prowess, those who have earned the right to be entrusted to gifts by God. But it's not true. To each one of us, grace was given. In fact, Paul wrote to one of the most immature carnal churches in history, full of believers who are struggling in their Christian walk, it seems. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, Paul writes, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all, each given gifts of the Spirit so that others might benefit. And in verse 11 there, Paul wrote, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. We don't get to pick and choose the gifts. The Spirit distributes as He wills. And then in verse 12, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. And our gifts are different from one another, each one serving a purpose in the body. That ties back into what Paul said at the start of verse 7 in Ephesians 4. But to each one of us, grace was given. The word but it's that contrast word again, meaning we need to look back at what Paul just wrote to see that contrast. And in the previous verse, which we looked at last week, he wrote about the unity of the church, one body, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. But to each one of us, grace was given. There's that contrast there. It's the contrast in the unity and the individuality. That though we are united in the body of Christ as one, having the same DNA, we are not uniform. We are unique. And to each one of us, grace was given to uniquely reflect the image of Christ. My siblings and I are very alike in many ways. We look quite similar and have some resembling features. We even have some of the same core values as a result of growing up together. But we are each unique in our own way. Some of us are better than others in certain areas and vice versa. You want to build something or restore an old car or sell a house? Talk to my brother. You want to juggle momhood with grace while running two businesses in a pandemic and choreographing dances for a local dance school? Call my sister. You need a last-minute sub to preach a sermon at a church service? You might email me. The body of Christ should have some unified core elements, things which Paul outlined in verses 4 through 6 last week. Those things cannot change. And Paul and other New Testament authors wrote many of, many, many of the New Testament letters in the Bible defending those core elements, the DNA which we all need to share, the uncompromisable truths of the gospel. But like siblings, we are going to uniquely portray the image of Christ and fulfill different roles in the kingdom of God. So just what does this gracious gift distribution look like? Is it some dirty Santa free-for-all where you just kind of end up with something whether you wanted it or not? Do we get to send a note to Jesus saying we have been good that year and requesting certain gifts that appeal to us? Let's go a bit deeper in verses 8 through 10. It says this, Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. 
Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Paul throws quite a bit in those few verses, and some in the church divide over exactly what he is trying to say, which is ironic since he just wrote that we are to be one and not divided. These verses are like a little escalator ride you might have taken at the mall as a kid. You know, going down one side, then getting on the other side of the escalator and going back up until your mom or dad or security guard finally told you to cut it out, that you weren't supposed to be playing on the escalators. Paul writes that Jesus ascended with a reminder that Jesus first descended before ascending again, and that this one who descended is also the one who eventually ascended again, up and down and up and down. Paul, what are you saying? Well, somehow this ties into Jesus giving gifts of his grace to the church. And sandwiched in between is this message, uh, sorry, this mention of ascending and descending. How does it fit in with God blessing his church with gifts? There are two main ways to look at this. The first way, Paul begins by quoting from Psalm 68, verse 18. And he says that when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Some believe Paul is slipping in a deep truth about Jesus' ministry here, culminating with the fact that when Jesus ascended, he set captives free. Those who agree with Paul hold to the claim that when Jesus was killed on the cross, that he had a work to do during those few days prior to the resurrection, that Jesus actually descended into the grave after the cross, where all the souls of those who had previously died, both righteous and unrighteous, were waiting. After all, there was no permanent forgiveness for sin before the cross and resurrection of Jesus. So the understanding is that the Old Testament saints, the faithful who trusted God in faith, believing on him for attributed righteousness as they practiced the symbolic sacrifices, that upon their deaths, they entered a sort of spiritual waiting room, waiting until Jesus finally came to pay the price for sin, sin past, present, and future. So after he breathed his last on the cross and declared, it is finished, Jesus descended and took the escalator down in order to preach the full gospel to those who had looked forward to it by faith, as well as to those who had rejected it in the past to see what they had rejected, to fill them in on all he had just done, and then to unlock the waiting room or holding cell the faithful were waiting in in order to ascend with him, while leaving behind those who rejected in order to await final judgment. Those who see events taking place this way, look at verses like 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19, which say, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Those who hold this view believe that they were waiting in prison per se, being held until the time when Jesus would die on the cross and set them free. Another area of scripture that ties into this, some believe, is Luke chapter 16, a parable in which Jesus described a poor beggar named Lazarus and a rich man, who both end up in two places after they die. It says this in Luke 16, So it was that the beggar died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort and fellowship with the other saints. 
The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So both men were consciously aware of their personal state after they died on this earth. And the parable continues with this apparent conversation taking place over the great gulf between these two areas that these two different men were in. Jesus says the rich men called out in torment, asking for Abraham to dip his finger in some water just to quench his thirst in the torment. The rich man acknowledged this separation of the two groups, saying, And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Those who hold that view see Ephesians 4 in this light. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, those who were waiting for Jesus to finally come, and once he did, he set them free, and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth, going down during those days between his death and his resurrection. Now, if that view is true, what an encouragement. Have you ever felt like God needed to hurry things up and you were waiting around for something? I mean, you've been faithful, obedient, trusting, but now God has put you in some waiting room for a while and you wonder if God has forgotten about you. God will never forget about you. He knows right where you are. We forgot my sister once when she was a kid. After an evening event, she had fallen asleep and we put her on some chairs in a quieter area to keep sleeping as we clean things up. Well, we locked up, got in the car, and headed home. And about halfway there, it dawned on us when Mom said in a panic, Where's Becca? It was not quite as dramatic as a moment when the mom at home alone yells, Kevin, on the plane over the Atlantic, because we were only about three or four minutes away. But there was panic for sure. God will always come through for his people, and his promises are true. Imagine those Old Testament saints. I mean, in the parable in Luke 16, Abraham is still waiting. That was 42 generations of people between Abraham and Jesus, according to Matthew 1.17. And Abraham was still waiting. That's longer than any wait you have ever had at a restaurant for a table or at the DMV to get your license or for your Amazon Prime package to arrive. And how relieved they must have been if Jesus himself finally showed up down there in the waiting room and told the best story ever. Sorry, guys, for making you wait so long. Sorry, Abraham, for making you wait 42 generations. But have I got a story for you? Filling in all the blanks, explaining to each one of them all that had taken place and how their own lives had played in to that story. Hey, Abraham, remember when you were supposed to sacrifice your son? Well, let me tell you how God used that as a symbol of what I just did on the cross. Or, hey, Moses, remember that whole thing with the death of the firstborn and the killing of the lambs? Well, come take a look at my pierced hands and my feet. None of my bones are broken, and my nickname is the Lamb of God. Hey, David, remember when you were told that one of your descendants would sit on the throne forever and ever? Well, let me introduce myself. How long they had all waited, and how well worth the wait it had been. In Psalm 13, David wrote about a time he thought the Lord had forgotten him. At the start of that psalm, in verse 1, he wrote, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? You've probably felt that way before. How long, O Lord, until you come through for me? 
Well, you know how that psalm ends? In verse 6, David writes, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He says essentially, my bad, O Lord. You did come through, my bad, and did an awesome job when you did it. You have dealt bountifully with me. It was truly worth the wait. When it comes to the verses in Ephesians 4, others see the ascending and descending spoken of as simply Jesus coming to this earth for his earthly ministry and setting us free who were captive to sin and living for our own purposes. Jesus mentioned in John 3.13, just a few verses before God so loved the world, No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Jesus' earthly ministry required him to descend to set us free, then ascend again back to heaven, which we see in Acts chapter 1. In verse 9 of Acts 1, we read, Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Jesus, having set the captives free with his death and resurrection, now ascending back to the Father. But just one verse earlier, Jesus said in verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He tells them that they will soon receive a gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and that the Spirit would manifest in their lives by unique gifts of His grace. We see that begin on the day of Pentecost, when the gift of tongues is given to the disciples, and Peter stands up and speaks effectively and powerfully, manifesting his gifts that were given to him so that others might benefit. Those with this second view see a logical explanation for what Paul writes in Ephesians 4 verse 8. When he ascended on high, ascending from that mountain back to the Father, he led captivity captive, having accomplished salvation on the cross, and gave gifts to men, fulfilled on the day of Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, one issue to consider, though, and some get caught up here. What Paul writes in verse 8 is a quote from the Old Testament, Psalm 68, verse 18, But in the original Hebrew, which Psalms was written in, it seems to say that he received gifts among men. Paul, writing in Greek, seems to translate it that he gave gifts to men. Well, what is it? Did God take and receive, or did God give gifts? In Psalm 68, verse 18, the word is lukach. The word is used 965 times in the Old Testament with various meanings. The main meaning is to take, translated that way almost 800 times. The word can mean to take, to capture, to grab hold of, to take into possession. In fact, that word is used in Genesis 2.15 where it says, Then the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it, grabbing hold of Adam and putting him where he was created to be for God's purposes. When we are believers, God takes hold of the gifts he created us with, natural abilities, talents, strengths, for his glory. When Paul translates it here in verse 8, he translates it as gives gifts, to give, to supply, to furnish, to commission. Well, if you put the two together, God takes hold of the gifts he created us with and then supplies us and furnishes us with the power of the Spirit to be used in his kingdom for others to be built up in Jesus. Some gifts will be natural, 
Some will be supernatural. We didn't know they were even there before. But God takes hold of the gifts he created us with or appointed to us and gives us his Holy Spirit to activate and use those gifts for his glory. When I lived overseas, my parents bought me a desktop computer one year as a gift. It was on sale at Costco. It was a great deal, and so they shipped it off to me in Europe. I was excited for my new computer. It took took some time for me to get it, of course, with all the shipping. And so in the weeks that I waited, I went to the furniture store and I bought a desk for it. I cleared out a place in my room to set it up, ready for my computer to arrive. Eventually, I finally got the slip in the mailbox from the postman telling me I had packages awaiting for me. I was so excited to go pick up my computer. I took my slip to the post office, handed it over the counter, and within a few minutes, a few large boxes were brought out from the back room. Well, I loaded them up, I drove them home, and carried them up the four flights of stairs to my apartment and unpacked the boxes to set up my new computer. I got the monitor and I set it up. I got the keyboard, the mouse, and even the mouse pad, and I got those things ready. I got a printer and put that on the shelf nearby where I could do all my printing. And I got the tower with the motherboard and the hard drive and all the essential parts of the computer. Well, one box was missing in the shipment, the power cables. I called my parents. They had indeed sent them, but where were they? Turns out that one box got stuck in customs while the other boxes had made it through. And it wasn't an easy fix. It took a bunch of paperwork, faxing back and forth, back and forth. And and all that time, a great, and as great as the computer was that was sitting in my apartment, they weren't going to accomplish anything, those other parts I had, until I got the cords to make them run together. And mind you, it was an American computer, so I needed American power cords to run the things on my transformer that I had at home. So the rest of the pieces, they waited until I got what was essential to fire things up. All of us on this earth, believer and non-believer, are fearfully and wonderfully made. Each one unique, with strengths and abilities that are pretty amazing. Saved or unsaved, there are amazing people all around us. Gifted, creative, intelligent. But until we are set free in Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit, only then can God take hold of all he has created us to be and give us the power to fulfill our purpose. What a waste of talents and abilities all around us every single day of those who do not yet know God. Now, whichever view one takes on the ascending and descending Paul mentions, the fact remains, God distributes gifts, and he does it as he wills. So let the gift giving begin as we move on to verses 11 and 12. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. While we each are gifted in some area of the kingdom, Paul mentions some unique gifts, and some refer to these as the office gifts, gifts and roles in the body of Christ that are critical and strategically given by the Lord to those who are faithful to use them. He gave some, it says, some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Some apostles, the word means ones who are sent. Those pioneers appointed by Jesus to take the gospel forward, sent into the world. And what a job they did. 2,000 years later, the original message is still going forth in all the world and bringing forth fruit. Those apostles were witnesses of the life and resurrection of Jesus. 
We still have some of those gifted today, sent to pioneer in the body of Christ, those who are sent out, and that might be the closest thing to an apostle, but not in the original capacity. It says there in those verses that he gave some to be prophets, those who would speak forth for God. That's the role of a prophet. Not always foretelling things, but always forthtelling, speaking forth the things of God. The early church had prophets. Even Paul spoke prophetically, clarifying, articulating, and applying the truth of God, and also declaring truth about the return of Christ in the New Testament. There are some today in the church who are given prophetic giftings by him himself, speaking forth for God, not always foretelling, but always forthtelling. Some are evangelists, those who declare the good news so effectively, bringing others to faith in Jesus. In the early church, we see this clearly. Peter speaking at Pentecost and 3,000 get saved. Or Philip, the evangelist, sharing with the Ethiopian eunuch in the desert. There are some today, too, who he gives gifts to to effectively share the gospel. There's obvious ones like Billy Graham or Franklin Graham or Greg Laurie. They hold crusades, speak the gospel, and people get saved. And maybe some of you see in your own local church that some just have a way of bringing people to Christ above and beyond what we are all called to do in sharing the good news. Some pastors and teachers, those who care for the flock like a shepherd and feed them with the word of God. Now, some see these as separate things, some pastors and some teachers, but commentators I've looked at say the original language has definite articles in this listing of these gifts. And the final one, teachers, lacks a definite article meaning that it is paired together with pastors. So it's pastors and teachers working together as a unit. We see pastors and teachers in the early church. Some like Peter and Paul used mightily to care for the church and feed the church the truth of God's word. And likewise today, the important ministry of pastors and teachers in the local church, keeping God's people healthy and fed. But these, quote, office gifts tend to get most of the attention when it comes to gifting in the body of Christ. But what purpose do those gifts play in light of other gifts that he might give? Well, listen again. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and and some pastors and teachers. Now, here's the reason now. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Those office gifts are important because they are catalysts for all the other gifts to be enacted and engaged when those gifts are being used. They are for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. They are not expected to do all the ministry, but the rest of us are called to do the ministry, equipped by the other gifts to do so. Unfortunately, many expect people like pastors to do all the ministry, and we just come on Sundays to get filled up by them. They minister to us, and the rest of us are just recipients, reservoirs that need to be filled up. How untrue. The rest of the body is called to do the ministry, and those office gifts equip us to do what needs to be done in the kingdom of God. When those gifts are used, it is for the edifying of the body of Christ. The strengthening, the preparation, the building up, using our gifts should have a domino effect. As one person engages in their gifts, other people are activated in their gifts, and it's a ripple effect that continues, as Paul says, until we all grow up and mature into who God has called us to be. As he says in verses 13 through 16, we should all be using our gifts to edify one another. Quote, 
till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's saying there, until we all reach maturity, essentially. Continuing on, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. He says we should continue ministering our gifts till we all have wisdom, maturity, stability, not able to be deceived or duped by false teaching. And going on, but speaking the truth and love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That ripple effect? It's supposed to be exponential. You use your gifts so that I might grow in my gifts. Then I use my gifts so that others might grow in their gifts. As we all commit to that, we grow in the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We grow up to look more like him, growing up in all things into him who is the head. You notice that even with children on this earth, as they they grow up, they tend to look more and more like their parents. Same thing in the body of Christ. This growing up with stability and maturity so that we are grounded and not tossed to and fro with anything and everything that comes our way. It's unfortunate to watch the church be rocked back and forth by all this tricky and all the cunning craftiness that goes on in the world today. It comes from a lack of maturity that comes from a lack of people using their gifts. The goal is maturity, mature, developed, strong, stable believers, a healthy body that is building itself up as we all discover and use our gifts. It's a body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Where are you and I in this process? Are we just taking and receiving in the body of Christ? Or are we supplying something? Every joint has something to supply. The goal and purpose is clear that we should no longer be children, but mature believers. Unfortunately, in our modern on-demand world, there is much distraction to stunt our growth, isn't there? It's easy to take and not to give. Easier to be self-absorbed than to be others-focused. But the church more than ever needs maturity and strength to grow up into the head of Jesus Christ. Paul writes that every joint should supply something, that every part should do its share. Are we supplying? Are we doing our share? I encourage us to discover our giftings and our ministries, whether that be flipping transparencies, which is pretty much obsolete nowadays, or pastoring and teaching. The body is grown when we use those gifts in love. Every joint supplies something. Every part does its share. These images of the body, we are the body of Christ, his hands and his feet in this world today. You know, recently I was quarantined due to a COVID exposure. We've been around someone who is positive, and as a precautionary measure, we worked from home for a week so as not to expose our students. It was not an opportune time for me as far as work was concerned. It was the first week of a new semester, which in my program is a whole new crop of students. And during those first few weeks, I guide them through a pretty focused and full orientation. It's a very hands-on time for me at my work. So it was a real problem when I was homebound for this period. Well, fortunately, 
I was able to zoom in each day to the classroom, all day, leading the orientation from home, projected into the classroom live with camera and microphone on both ends. And my dear colleague was there in the room live with the students. She became my hands and my feet as I led the orientation from afar, passing out the handouts that needed to be given, going to those who had raised their hands when they had trouble logging in on their applications, collecting enrollment forms from them as they brought them back with signatures. I was so thankful for her because all I could do was watch from a distance. I could not be there in person. I was still conducting the orientation, but I needed hands and feet on the ground there. So it is with the body of Christ. Jesus is watching from afar, but he needs us to be his hands and his feet as the body of Christ. Jesus is equipping his church in this world for all that he has planned for this world and for his kingdom. But on the ground here, we are his hands and his feet. He cannot be here right now, but we are. You are. And I am called to be what he has called us to be, to supply what he has called us to supply, to edify the body, his body, in love. May the Lord stir up within us all what he has called us and gifted us to be, his hands and his feet in a world in desperate need of his touch, in desperate need for him to walk among us. May he do it through us today. Until next time, God bless you and the ministry he has called you to.